everyone and welcome to a new criminal case. As you may know, this podcast is not for the faint-hearted because we always try to bring you the facts as they occurred. But if you're not squimish and you'd like to hear more exclusive content, please join our private club on thecoinducrime.com to access more than 30 unpublished podcasts. You'll be a part of a group that includes Christoph Wallens, Louise Brodham, Melodico, Mark Antoine T.S.T.S. Massey, and our latest member, Leo Braish, who sponsored this week's episode. We thank you all very much. Now, let's get started. At the very bottom of the Rocky Mountains of Wolf Lodge in American West at the Kootenai County seat on the banks of sparkling blue lakes surrounded by woods and bushes is a peaceful and restful city called Kurdeline. The destination is very popular due to its marvelous scenery and resorts across the North River of the magnificent lake of the same name. Because of its vast natural spaces, the area is very popular with visitors. Yet since 2005, the tourist town of Cordialine has unfortunately become famous due to tragic events related to the kidnapping of Shastagroen and the cruel fate suffered by her family. This case, which dragged on for several weeks, had left an indelible impact on America's collective conscience. On Sunday, May 15, 2005, in a rural part of Idaho, the Groen Mackenzie family had a barbecue in their little house situated in the middle of nowhere. They were a family of five. Brenda, the mother, was a pretty 40-year-old brunette who liked parties and listening to country music. Her eldest son, Slade, was 13 years old and very resourceful. The two youngest, Dylan and Shasta, were respectively nine and eight years old. Despite her young age, the youngest of the growing children was a brave little girl. Shasta was a lovely girl with brown hair and was very shy and obedient. For many years now, Brenda was separated from the father of her children, Steve Groen, a musician. Now she was living with Mark McKinsey in a cottage outside the city. The sun was shining bright and the coolness of the lake made the atmosphere an ideal setting to bring friends and family together for a while. But the Groen family was unaware that, lurking in the forest adjacent to the property, a man was watching the whole scene. He had been following the family for more than two days when they had gone into town for shopping. He spied on their actions in order to get to know their habits. He even had a pair of night vision binoculars so that he could see what was going on in the house. At midnight, when it seemed like everyone was asleep, he decided to strike. He parked in front of the cottage and then, with a hammer in his hand, he walked towards the backyard while lighting his way with a red lamp. Usually, residents in Kurdialine felt safe. In fact, the area had the lowest homicide rate in the whole country. As a result, residents rarely locked their doors. After a quick look around the property, the assailant entered the premises via a secondary door that was still unlocked. He entered and surprised Brenda, who was on the first floor, stretched out on the couch with her two dogs. Threatening her with his gun, he ordered her to lock up the dogs and wake up the rest of the family. That's when the nightmare began. At first, Mark thought it was probably a burglar, but he quickly realized that this madman was not there for money or jewelry. He was there to abduct the children sleeping upstairs. Once the family was all together, Joseph Duncan, a serial killer, pedophile, and rapist who had been active since he was 15, tied them all up. Quickly, he carried Dylan and his sister Shasta to the red car parked outside and then returned. Screaming at the top of their lungs from the car, the poor children could hear the dull thud of something falling several times. 
and then they heard their mother scream in pain and their stepfather cry out in agony. Then they saw their brother slayed with his skull smashed as he staggered and collapsed under the porch before being dragged by the killer. Terrified and all alone in the dark car, the two kids fell to terror without understanding or seeing what was going on inside the house. Tears rolled down their cheeks and they sniffed, but they tried to keep quiet out of fear that the same thing would happen to them. Suddenly, they couldn't hear their mother or stepfather anymore. Silence fell once more on the American countryside. Duncan got back into the car, smiling cynically. He showed the children the bloodied hammer that was used to kill their family. He drove them to the mountains of Montana, where he had already set up a campsite to carry out his diabolical plans. In short, he had planned to kill the adults and take the children to be used as sex slaves. This was the reason why the 42-year-old pedophile had kidnapped Dylan and Shasta in the stolen SUV. Over the next six weeks, he took them to different campsites across Idaho and Montana, where he sexually assaulted and physically and psychologically tortured them. On the afternoon of May 18, Dale Moyer, the sheriff of Kootenay County, reported to his deputies, Brad Maskell, and Bell Wolfinger that he had heard from the local shop owners that the grown family had not been to the market in three days. Moore, who was a large, imposing man, whose cold worn prominently displayed, scowled. He couldn't help but worry. The grown family usually went down to the town at least twice a week to stock up on fresh eggs, bread, and beer. Suddenly, the phone rang at the police headquarters, and Deputy Sheriff Maskell answered. On the other end of the line was a real estate broker named Bob Hollingsworth who wanted to make an urgent statement. He explained that he had hired a college student from the neighborhood by the name Slate to mow the grass which had grown along the driveway leading to his house in Wolf Lodge Bay. On the previous evening, the teen had showed up and done a good job, but Mr. Hollingsworth didn't have any money to pay him at the time. He then promised the boy that he would stop by his house the next day to pay him. That afternoon, upon arriving at the grown property on Frontage Road, the broker was taken aback by the horrifying spectacle. He told the police officers, There was blood everywhere on the driveway, on the porch, on the front door, inside the dogs were barking incessantly, and no one came to let them out. Yet the family cars were still parked in front of the house. I couldn't understand what was going on. Quickly, the two police officers jumped into the patrol car and headed to a cottage on the outskirts of the vast regional park. Once on the scene, everything seemed deserted. They decided to call for reinforcement, and as they waited, they walked towards the porch where bikes, kids' toys, and canned peaches had piled up. Suspicious-looking traces of something brown and red dotted the worn floor. When backup arrived, the sheriff asked them to put on their bulletproof vests get their shotguns, and had the cottage surrounded as he issued the customary warning. This is the police. Surrender and release the hostages. The property is entirely surrounded. You cannot escape. If you do not come out with your hands up in the next five minutes, we will be required to use force. I repeat, surrender and release the hostages. Five minutes went by and no one answered. Apparently, there were no signs of life in the house. The two sheriffs and the response team prepared themselves and decided to enter. At the same time, law enforcement officers broke into the main gate and entered through the backyard. A couple of frightened pit bulls quickly fled past the two officers and disappeared into thin air. The house gave off a terrible smell of blood and decomposing flesh. Moore recognized the first body in the kitchen. It was Brenda, lying on the ground in a pool of blood with her hands tied behind her back. 
her eldest son, Slade, as well as his friend Mark, had been tied and bludgeoned to death in the same way. All three of them had been violently struck several times with a blunt object. Traces of blood found near the fence seemed to indicate that one of the family members had been first struck outside and then dragged into the kitchen. It was a real massacre, but what had happened to the two youngest family members of the grown family? A search of the house and surroundings turned up nothing. According to the coroners, given the severe and deep concussions, the murder weapon might have been either a hammer or a heavy crowbar. The tool was used with extreme violence to strike the head as well as the nose and jaw. The blows disfigured the victims who had been shackled before using nylon wristbands identical to the ones used by electricians. The cranial trauma was what led to the immediate death of the mother, son, and stepfather. The coroner established the time of the death of all three victims as May 15, 2005, which was about three days before the neighbor had made the deadly discovery. According to the size of the footprints that had left 48 impressions in the moist garden on the porch and on the floor of the house, experts concluded that the predator was a giant fellow of about 1.9 meters or maybe more. The murderer was apparently not interested in contents of Mark's wallet. Therefore, the theory of burglary or abduction for money was dismissed. None of the bodies showed any signs of sexual abuse. Consequently, it seemed that the perpetrator of this butchery had only one objective to abduct and abscond with Shasta and Dylan. Immediately, the entire perimeter of the crime scene was cordoned off. The tire track found in the driveway were thoroughly scrutinized by specialists. They were probably from some kind of van, like a Jeep Cherokee, which likely belonged to the murderer. The serial killer was also the kidnapper of two children. The FBI and other local law enforcement agencies like the Idaho State Patrol joined the investigation, offering $100,000 to anyone with useful information on the kidnapper. In addition, posters of Dylan and Shasta were put up almost everywhere in the country and beyond, in the hopes that someone would recognize them. Likewise, the local and national media played a significant role by widely publishing the photos and the announcement of a reward for any of the informants. Thereafter, volunteers gathered to take part in the search. They searched every possible nook and cranny in the forest from top to bottom, around the lakeshore, the sheds, and the whole town, but found nothing. The two children had completely disappeared. The next day in Bonner's Ferry, in Boundary County, John, the owner of a sporting goods store, was arranging items on the shelves. The children accompanied by a man entered. The man asked for information, and then all three of them left together. After the three left, something intrigued John. He called out to one of his employees. There is something familiar about that guy, especially the kids with him. Does he look familiar to you? No, not at all. I've never seen him or the kids before. Of course, don't you remember? There was an Amber Alert not too long ago. John then contacted the authorities. He told them about a tall, slender man who had visited his store. He was with a girl and a boy who matched the physical description of Dylan and Shasta, and he also appeared to be driving a van. The driver asked him for directions to a city called Libby in Montana. Yet although every Jeep Cherokee traveling from Bonner's Ferry to Libby had been thoroughly inspected, none of them matched the kidnappers. In the meantime, the investigators focused on the potential suspects who may have had a motive. They could not afford to overlook any clues, but first, they needed to be sure, but this was not a case of parental abduction. This began by summoning the child's biological father to the sheriff's office. 
Moyer knew that Brenda was not on good terms with her ex-husband and they had been fighting over the custody of their kids for quite some time. After their divorce, they had a very strained relationship. Furthermore, they both had a very heated argument two days before her death. Additionally, during an interview with the press, Steve Groen seemed very ambivalent and hardly sincere. With a blank stare, he declared, Please let my children go. They don't have anything to do with any of this. Please give me back my children. At police headquarters, Steve stated that he had spent the night from Sunday to Monday at home. Consequently, he had no alibi, so he continued to be the primary suspect in the sordid national case. The investigators proceeded with the search of his home. All messages and correspondences on his computer and cell phone were scrutinized. He was also given a lie detector test, which ultimately cleared him. He could have not been the perpetrator of these atrocities, much less the abductor of his children. Nevertheless, his statements to the media sparked a new theory supported by the autopsy results of the murdered mother and her savagely beaten boyfriend. The medical examiner found fairly high doses of marijuana and methamphetamine in Brenda and Mark's blood, which led the detectives to suspect Gary Youngwood, a gangster who potentially could have given drugs to the couple when they possibly failed to pay him back. Furthermore, he had also attended the barbecue held by grown family. To confirm their suspicions, they took a sample of his fingerprints from the cottage's main door. Soon, an arrest warrant was issued against Gary Youngwood. The dealer went to the authorities and stated that he played no part in any of this tragic event that had occurred. Seven weeks went by in the midst of uncertainty and hope. The federal and local authorities expanded their search to include the whole country. There was not a single roadside billboard in any American state that did not display the images of Sashta and Dylan. As for the residents in the small town, they brought flowers and candles and gathered every evening next to Groan's house to pray for the return of the little angels, safe and sound. Despite the widespread media coverage, the investigation remained at a standstill. After such a long disappearance, everyone was starting to lose hope forever of seeing the kids again. July 2, 2005 was a warm day. Jackie Allen, an employee at fast food restaurant Denny's in Cordialine, had just finished her workday. She enjoyed her work. The customers at Denny's in Cordialine were, for the most part, regulars, while some of them had become her friends too. But there were always a few out-of-towners. It was a pleasant day and Jackie had been working hard ever since the start of her shift. Finally, it was time for a well-deserved break. As she went back into Denny's restaurant, Jackie was surprised to see a very tall, unshaven man enter followed by a little girl in torn shots and a filthy short-sleeved shirt. Looking tired, the disheveled little girl stepped forward mechanically, like a robot, with her head lowered. The man and the little girl sat down at a table and ordered something to eat. The child's face called out to her as Jackie secretly watched her, but she only stared at her from afar. As Jackie turned around, she noticed that she was not only the one who was almost completely convinced that the child in front of her was in fact Shasta Groen, whose photos appeared everywhere. She exchanged a look with her boss, the restaurant owner, and two of their customers who had recognized the little girl. Maintaining her composure, the waitress approached the man and told him that there would be a slight delay in their cheeseburger order. Then she rushed off to the back room where the telephone was located. Very discreetly, she called the police. Hello? Listen, there's not much time. Jackie whispered. I think Shasta Groen and her kidnapper are here right now. I'll try to stall them as much as I can, but you need to hurry. Ma'am, where are you calling from? Asked the police officer. This is Jackie, Jackie Allen. 
a waitress at Denny's in the neighborhood. I'm calling you from work. I think this is the guy. Yes, I understand completely. Ma'am, please be careful and under no circumstances try to confront the suspect. Above all, remain calm. Don't say anything to your customers in order to avoid a panic. We'll be there right away. Okay, understand, officer. May God be with you. But wait, you'll probably need backup, advised the young woman. Okay, understood, ma'am. In the blink of a complicit eye, carefully and secretly, the customers in Danny's restaurant initiated a strategy to try and entrap the criminal. They positioned themselves in such a way that they could stop him if he decided to escape. The police arrived with their lights flashing to get their guns and entered the restaurant. Duncan was immediately arrested. At 2.30 in the morning, the kidnapper was handcuffed and the little girl was finally free. Parked in front of the restaurant, the police found a red Jeep Cherokee Laredo with Missouri license plates. The suspect had rented the car in Minnesota and had never returned it. Inside the vehicle, there was a blood-stained jacket that probably belonged to Dylan, a gun, a map of Montana, and other clues that provide beyond a doubt that Duncan was responsible for the triple murders of the grown Mackenzie family and the kidnapping of the two children. However, there was no trace of the boy in the restaurant or in the car. In the presence of law enforcement, the waitress asked Shasta, Where is your brother? My brother is in heaven, replied the poor little eight-year-old girl. That in fact was what everyone had been wondering. Perhaps Duncan had lied to her to keep her away from her brother and he was probably still hidden somewhere out there. At least there was still reason to be hopeful. Then, the suspect was asked where he had left the child, but the man demanded to speak to an attorney, otherwise he had nothing to say. At that point, the authorities had little hope of finding Dylan alive. In any case, they were compelled to continue with their search until they found him either dead or alive. As for Shasta, she was sent to the emergency ward at the Kootenai Medical Center for treatment and care. Upon her release from the hospital, she would be placed under the supervision of her father, her only remaining family member. Shasta, however, was stuffed and gradually recovered from the horrifying ordeal she had suffered for more than a month and a half in the company of her bloodthirsty attacker. She told the police officers about the hellish nightmare she had experienced and the terrible agony that she and her big brother had endured. The sadistic pedophile subjected them to the most horrific sexual abuse imaginable. He had even killed Dylan before her very eyes. Shasta herself was almost on the brink of death, but she managed to convince Duncan to spare her life. When he began to strangle her, she called him by his favorite nickname, Jet. He was moved by the gesture, so he released her and broke down into tears. Following that, he promised her that he would let her see her father. That's why they'd returned to Cordialine. On the night of his arrest, the so-called Jazzy and the little grown girl had taken a walk around the city and then stopped for a bite at the fast food joint. Sadly, her big nine-year-old brother did not live to see his 10th birthday. He had been killed with a sawed-off 12-caliber hunting rifle after hours and hours of torture. Shasta described to the police that the murderer had beaten Dylan around 25th of June. The young boy had continuously pleaded for his life, but the killer was unshaken. First, he shot the child with a shotgun blast onto his belly. Wrecked with pain, the poor kid begged him in tears, but it was of no use. The assassin pressed the gun against the boy's head and pulled the trigger. The gun clicked but did not fire, and so Dylan continued to plead for mercy from his kidnapper. Without remorse, the bloodthirsty monster shot the little boy at point-blank range. To get rid of the body... Duncan rolled it up into a blanket and placed it on a makeshift pyre 
made from Shasta's shoes, which had traces of the little boy's blood. He then started a fire and watched over it for 24 hours until the body had been completely reduced to ashes. The surviving little girl was able to take the investigators to the exact spot where everything had transpired. Based on the clues and information that Shasta provided, law enforcement was able to precisely identify the primary location of their captivity. Duncan had held her and her brother in a remote makeshift encampment in Lolo National Forest near St. Regis in Montana, not far from the Bitterroot Mountains Forest Service. Two days later, skull fragments and hundreds of bits of charred bones were found, which were immediately sent to the FBI laboratory in Quantico, Virginia, for DNA testing. Sadly, it was confirmed that they did in fact belong to Dylan Groen. The autopsy confirmed that he had been dismembered and burnt after that, just as his sister claimed. The maniac had recorded each of the barbarous acts on the videos retrieved from the stolen car, proved to be overwhelming evidence against him. In one filmed scene, Dylan was being raped in an old cabin. After relieving his perversive and sickly desires, the deranged narcissist hanged the poor child until he passed out. He then started abusing him repeatedly, screaming in pain and bruised. Dylan cried his eyes out as his torturer screamed. The devil sent the demon to punish you, but the demon couldn't handle it, so the devil did the job himself. The devil is here, son. The devil himself. The devil loves watching children suffer and cry. In another sequence, he showed the children the hammer used to kill their mother and he threatened them with death if they did not as he commanded. In the same excerpts, several shots showed that the brother and sister naked in disgusting sexual positions. The images traumatized all those who took part in the investigation. In a press conference, FBI agents refused to comment on the ghastly footage given that they were so despicable but they agreed that the monster took pleasure in inflicting tremendous pain on little Dylan. Investigators also gained possession of an encrypted journal on the murderer and the sexual predator's computer. With unparalleled arrogance, Dylan believed that no one would ever be able to decode the journal for 20 or 30 years. Even the diary, he claimed to have frankly and crudely described all the murders and assaults that he may have committed. The federal agents believed that the video of his tortures and possibly even the scene of Dylan's murder had been streamed live for a secret circle of pedophiles from across the country and maybe even from around the world through the Sexual Deviance website and his blog, The Fifth Nail, which is still online. The psychopath's rage is on full display in each of his posts. He talks about taking revenge on the society that imprisoned him at the age of 16 for rape with torture in an adult prison with hardened criminals. This man considered his vile action as acts of revenge against an unjust system, in Duncan's opinion, made him the devil he is today. Born on February 25, 1963, Joseph Edward Duncan III was certainly no stranger to crime. He was quite well known by the law and had a criminal record full of all kinds of offenses. In 1978, in his hometown in Tacoma, Washington, where he was 15 years old, he raped a young boy of nine by threatening him with a gun. The following year, he was arrested while driving a stolen car and charged as a minor. He was sentenced to the Disland Boys Ranch in Tacoma. He told a therapist there, who was assigned to his case, that he had tied up and sexually assaulted six kids. He also confessed that at the age of 16, he had raped 13 other boys who were younger than him. In 1980, while still in Tacoma, this aggressive and unstable delinquent stole some guns from a neighbor in the area. He used them to kidnap a 14-year-old boy and later sodomized him while constantly threatening to kill him. 
Following the incident, Duncan was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but he was released on parole in 1994 after having served 14 years behind bars. During his parole, Duncan lived in several locations across the Seattle area. In March 2005, Duncan was once again arrested on a case that dated back to July 3, 2004, in which he was prosecuted for fondling two six-year-olds who were playing in a playground in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. The pedophile filmed them without their knowledge before calling out to them and pulling their pants down. As a result, he appeared on April 5, 2005 before a judge in Becker County who set his bail at $15,000. A businessman from Fargo who knew Duncan paid the amount in full and that's how the asocial and mentally unstable man was once again put back into the streets. It was then that the predator, who was hell-bent on revenge, decided to disappear. He brought a camera, some night vision goggles, and a hammer. Once equipped with his tools, he crisscrossed several states before targeting the grown Mackenzie family. In anticipation of his future crimes, he bought guns that he loaded with bullets whose serial number he erased. He also wore shoes that were three sizes too big in order to throw the detectives off his trail. While he was traveling Idaho's panhandle, the state's northernmost counties, along Interstate 90, he spotted Shasta and Dylan playing in their bathing suits in a courtyard of a cottage located just off the highway. Consequently, the predator stopped and began to survey the house. He finally found his prey. On May 13, 2005, he was spying on the family when he wrote this post. The demons have taken over. I'm confused, lonely, and tired. I think I'm taking some people with me. On June 1, 2005, a federal warrant was issued for Joseph Edward Duncan III's arrest. He was declared to be armed and considered dangerous. At the point, the two growing children had already been snatched. After his arrest in 2005, the accused was charged with the voluntary homicides of Mark McKenzie, Brenda, and Slade Groen. He was also charged with kidnapping and multiple counts of sexual assaults on Dylan and Shasta Groen and for the murder of Dylan Groen. While retracing Joseph Duncan's path and the chronology of his movements, the FBI took their time to examine other unresolved disappearances. Due to aggravating circumstances, Duncan was suspecting of having tortured, raped, and murdered other children as well. In fact, the American authorities were able to connect the serial killer to the murder of Anthony Martinez in California as well as two other half-sisters from Seattle named Sammy J. White and Carmen Cubias. Each of these crimes occurred during his parole from 1994 to 1997. In support of these accusations, during his questioning on July 19, 2005, Duncan admitted to raping and killing Sammy Joe and Carmen in 1996 and then Anthony in 1997. The following describes how the events unfolded. On July 6, 1996, Sammy Joe White and Carmen Cubias were reported missing. They left the Crest Motel to go to a nearby fast food restaurant, but never returned. Duncan spotted the two little girls, aged 11 and 9, as they crossed the street. Immediately, his delusion and desires began to resurface. The alley was deserted, so there were no witnesses in sight. It was important to act quickly and to strike hard. Determined, Duncan snatched the two young girls and tortured them for days before taking their lives. As soon as he grew fury of his two new captives, the diabolical monster smashed their head with an iron bar. On February 10, 1988, the two corpses was found in the bottle area of Washington. 
Unfortunately, they were already in a state of decomposition, which made it impossible to conduct an autopsy in order to determine whether or not the girls had suffered sexual assaults before being horribly murdered. On April 4, 1997, Duncan fled. Once again alone and depressed, he needed to have some company. More importantly, he wanted to have a bit fun and nothing pleased him more than the thought of a screaming child on the brink of death. After spending hours behind the wheel of his car, he noticed a young boy of 10 who was playing with his friends in the front yard of his house in Beaumont in Riverside County, California. As he approached the group and asked for help to find a missing cat, the children categorically refused. He then offered a dollar to anyone willing to volunteer or provide assistance, but no one accepted. At his wit end, the perverted sociopath grabbed Martinez at knife point right in front of his terrified little brother Mark, aged six, who watched on as Duncan threw him into the car and drove off at full speed. On April 19th, after two weeks of intense searching, the body of Martinez was found nude and partially decomposed under a rock in the Burdu Canyon Trail in a deserted area of Indio in Southern California, just a few kilometers away from Palm Springs. According to the medical examiner, the victim had been tied with adhesive tape, sexually assaulted, and then violently murdered. The perpetrator of the crime brought the child to the mountains, smashed a skull with a stone, and left him to die in pain as the vulture circled around. After the hardened pedophile was arrested in 2005, bloggers began to notice similarities between him and the police's sketch published in connection with the Martinez case. Furthermore, the resemblance between the car that Duncan had been driving the other day and the one driven by Anthony's attackers was quite striking. Working in strict collaboration with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the Federal Bureau of Investigation immediately contacted the local authorities in Riverside County in order to get the fingerprints that had been collected and compared them with Joseph Duncan's. They were identical. On October 3, 2005, the sheriff of Riverside officially announced that Martinez's case had been sold and the guilty had been arrested. With respect to his atrocious crimes, Duncan stated without any remorse that this was payback against a society that sent me back to prison just because of a parole violation. The sociopathic criminal's arrogance did not leave anyone unmoved. His hatred and malevolence inspired rage. He was so adamant in his goal to harm humanity that everyone wanted to see him suffer. Joseph Duncan appeared before the criminal court in Kootenai County on July 13, 2005, where he was charged with three counts of first-degree murders for the death of Brenda Groen, Slade Groen, and Mark McKenzie. The prosecutors for the state of Idaho initially planned to charge Duncan with two counts of first-degree kidnapping related to Shasta and Dylan Groen and a charge for the latter's murder. However, under the U.S. law, Transporting children across the state lines for purpose of sexual exploitation is a federal offense. Consequently, these complaints were sent to the FBI. He was therefore to be tried for these crimes with a separate verdict. The trial was scheduled to begin on January 17, 2006. However, due to the defense's request for more time to prepare these cases, Judge Fred Gibbler moved the preliminary hearing initially to April 4 and then once again to October 26 of the same year. To explain the delays, Whelan, the U.S. deputy prosecutor in Idaho, stated that it is part of human nature to want to protect people, but it will never be possible to protect them all, he explained. 
A serial killer of children presents challenges for everybody. The case has taken a tremendous toll on everyone involved, especially the lawyers, officers, jurors, victims, as well as the whole community. No one wants to have to deal with this case a second time, myself included. On October 16, 2006, shortly after the jury selection had begun, prosecutors for Kootenai County and Duncan's lawyer counselor Roger Peven eventually reached a plea agreement. According to the agreement, the suspect would plead guilty to all charges levied against him by the government. He also agreed to cooperate with the county detectives to help them solve the crimes he had committed. He was also required to provide them with all the passwords for all the encrypted files stored on his computer. And Cordelline, the criminal outsider, was issued three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of a parole for the three murder charges while he awaited the result of his federal trial on the charges of kidnapping and murder. In any case, if he was not given the death sentence based on federal offenses, he would be returned to the Kootenai County, where he would be sentenced to death. On January 18, 2007, Duncan was found guilty by the federal grand jury on 10 charges including kidnapping resulting in death, aggravated sexual assault on a minor, sexual exploitation of a child leading to the death, and other crimes related to the illegal possession of firearms and vehicular theft. The next day, he was brought before a federal court in Boise, Idaho, where he pleaded guilty on all charges issued against him. When he appeared before the jury, Duncan made no mention of any childhood trauma to justify his criminal actions. He stated that he was completely aware of what he was doing, but he did not feel any regret. What was done was done, and he had good reasons for doing it. On Wednesday, August 27, 2008, after deliberating for three hours, the jurors sentenced Joseph Duncan to capital punishment, and Judge Lodge upheld the verdict. When the sentence was announced, the asocial pedophile had a slight smile on his lips, as if he were relieved to have reached the end of his trial. Even his own death would not affect him in any way. Nevertheless, he would still have to answer for his other crimes in other courts while awaiting his execution. Two years after being sentenced to capital punishment for the federal jury, Kootenai County imposed three additional life sentences on Duncan. Since then, pedophile and serial killer Joseph Edward Duncan III has been serving his sentence in the Terry Holt Federal Penitentiary in Indiana. Despite official opposition from public defender John Adams and prosecutor Bill Douglas, the prisoner still has internet access, which allows him to remain constantly active on his blog, The Fifth Nail, which was created in 2004. Providing Duncan with a virtual space was deemed to be quite useful by American criminologists. It would allow them to study the criminal profile of this kind of sociopath and to discover through these connections any criminals who might potentially communicate with Jazzy Jet. In his introduction, he wrote, Joseph E. Duncan III is back on the web from the federal death row to reveal for you the real meaning of the fifth nail. According to the legend, the Jews had ordered a gypsy blacksmith to make them four nails for Christ's crucifixion. However, the man took the initiative of making five. Two for the knees, two for the other two hands, and the fifth nail was for Christ's heart. To guarantee Christ's death, the blacksmith had voluntarily taken care to poison the fifth nail to be used for the crucifixion. It was the blacksmith's visceral spite that led to the curse of his entire tribe. As a result, Holy Mother Mary condemned all gypsies to eternal wandering and extreme misery. Duncan cast himself as a character, which was the reason for the block symbolism. Diagnosed as a narcissist, sadistic and antisocial, this merciless male factor was the very embodiment of evil. Everywhere he went, he spread pain and misery. 
Moreover, his final victim, who had miraculously survived, would have to bear the burden of her kidnapping for the rest of her life. Admittedly, the widespread media coverage did play a crucial role in returning her to her father, but it also gave her unwanted fame. In the newspapers, on the street and on posters, the image of Sashta and her kidnapper sat side by side. It seemed that every car that passed by had a sticker with the words, Kill Duncan, pasted on its windshield. At Fernan Elementary School, all her classmates wanted to talk about was what had happened to her. The prosecutors for Kootenai County did everything necessary to prevent the little girl from having to testify in Duncan's trial, but she was far from having recovered from this ordeal. For a long time, she carried the weight of this terrible misfortune with a profound sense of guilt. In an interview with the press, Shasta had this to say, I wasn't able to have an ordinary life or to go out without anyone recognizing me. People would point at me as if I was a celebrity, but I didn't like that. I really wanted them to treat me normally because I didn't feel like I was an 8-year-old child. That made me constantly try to be someone that I wasn't. Throughout her adolescence, the young girl did everything to escape the cliché of being a poor survivor. Shasta took great care of her body and was obsessively preoccupied with her appearance, which she constantly changed. It was her way of telling those closest to her that she was having a good time, even when she really wasn't. She didn't want to feel like a victim for the rest of her life, and she refused to have anyone think about her that way. Yet within, the mental torture was never-ending. For many years, I felt like what had happened was my fault, she declared, as if I could have done something to change the course of events. It took away my innocence. I was very ashamed of it. Whether it was alcohol, drugs, or a cocktail party, she was always up for something as long as people thought that she was cool and friendly. But addiction had its consequences. At 17 years old, Shasta Grown had her first run-ins with the law. Each time judges viewed Shasta's case with leniency and compassion despite her repeated offense. The first time she was arrested for drug trafficking and then sent to a detention center for minors, she served a one-year sentence but was arrested once again in 2017 in connection with drugs. Now a mother of two children, Shasta was prosecuted for having left methamphetamine out in the open where her baby had access to it. Immediately, she pleaded guilty and was sentenced to a term of 18 months of unsupervised probation. In less than a month, the young woman violated the terms of her probation. As a result, in July 2018, the court modified her sentence. Taking into consideration her mental health issues, the judge of Canyon County refused to sentence her to a prison term and instead sentenced her once again to 18 months of probation. But it would be supervised this time. In many ways, Shasta Groen was still looking for a way to fulfill her dreams and ambitions, but because of her troubled past, it is difficult to say if she will ever achieve them. In 2019, the last surviving member of the Groen Mackenzie family announced that her father, Steve Groen, had died after a long battle with cancer. As for her kidnapper, he was diagnosed with glioblastoma, a severe malignant brain tumor that can grow rapidly. In October 2020, he underwent surgery. Yet afterwards, he declined any treatment and refused chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Consequently, the medical staff from the Federal Bureau of Prisons estimated that he had about 6 to 12 months left to live. For those on death row, the state of Idaho offered the choice of a firing squad or lethal injection. However, the disease made the decision for him. After Duncan's death on March 28, 2021, Shasta Groen, now in her mid-20s, issued a statement from where she said, for a long time, I have tried very hard not to hate this man, 
Today I awoke with the feeling that my soul was finally free. I hope that anyone else affected by Joseph Duncan may wake up feeling the same thing. Consequently, the misfortune of this family formerly from the Wolf Lodge Bay area in Kootenai County, who had been hunted down, attacked, and tortured to death, turned out to be the beat worst tragedies that the state of Idaho had ever known. Shasta is currently living in the Bose area and has been left to fend for herself with two dependent children and a serious addiction problem. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.